Go ahead and open your Bibles this morning to Deuteronomy chapter 1. Deuteronomy chapter 1, and we will be looking at Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 5 to 18 this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 5 to 18. And if you are ready, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word this morning, starting in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 9. Actually, let's start in verse 5, actually. Moses undertook to explain this law, saying, The Lord our God said to us in Horeb, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all their neighbors in the Arabah, in the hill country and in the lowland and in the Najeb and by the seacoast and the land of the Canaanites and Lebanon." As far as the great river, the river Euphrates. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and to their offspring after them. At that time, I said to you, I am not able to bear you by myself. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. May the Lord... The God of your fathers make you a thousand times as many as you are and bless you as he has promised you. How can I bear by myself the weight and the burden of you and your strife? Choose for your tribes wise, understanding, and experienced men, and I will appoint them as your heads. And you answered me, the thing that you have spoken is good for us to do. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and set them as heads over you, commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, commanders of fifties, commanders of tens, and officers throughout your tribes. And I charged your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. And the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I will hear it. And I commanded you at that time all the things that you should do. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So the words of Deuteronomy take place after the faithless rebellion of the previous generation of Israelites who turned what ought to have been around an 11-day walk to the promised land into a 40-year sojourn in the wilderness. Like we learned last week, the last of that disobedient generation had now died in the wilderness and this new generation was now standing at the ready, eager and itching to inherit the promises of God, to go in and to take the land. 
the entire nation, all Israel was now poised to go in and to take possession of Canaan. But before they would, before they could, Moses, in verse 5 it says, Moses undertook to explain this law. Meaning, Moses undertook the task or took upon himself the task of reminding the nation, of retelling the nation, of expounding and teaching the nation of the law that the Lord had delivered to their parents at Sinai 40 years earlier. It's been a generation since that first disclosure or announcement or that communication of the Lord's perfect holy law to Israel. And so before Israel enters the promised land, Moses now stands here and recounts to them the commands and the instructions and the statutes and the precepts of God, what God requires of, what God expects of his covenant people as they enter into that land and as they represent him to the nations as his own people. And so Moses begins this Deuteronomy or the word means retelling or second telling of God's law. And he begins with a history lesson. And so spanning from verse 9 or verse 5 all the way to the end of chapter 3, Moses will recount or remind the nations of the, of the, the nation of Israel about the reasons why they are here on the other side of the Jordan 40 years later rather than in the promised land at this moment, enjoying the abundance and the blessings therein. He will narrate and refresh their memories about their travels through the wilderness. He will bring to mind the victories that the Lord has won for them as they've been traveling in the wilderness, awaiting the promises of God. This is a history lesson for the new generation of Israelites about to enter into the promised land. He is making them or causing them or pointing them back to the beginning of their wilderness days. And so he begins in verse 6 to recount the history, saying, The Lord our God said to us in Horeb, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey. And go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all their neighbors in the Arabah, in the hill country and in the lowland and in the Najeb and by the seacoast, the land of the Canaanites and Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Now, while it is true that the journey from the journey to the land is an 11 day walk, by the Lord's design, they were never going to get to that land in 11 days. It was going to take a little longer than 11 days to take possession of the land because the Lord must, the Lord had to bring the nation of Israel to the wilderness of Sinai where they sat before the Mount Sinai in order to organize them and to prepare them for life in the land. And so before telling them that they had stayed long enough At Mount Sinai or Horeb, those are two words for the same place. So Deuteronomy prefers to use the word Horeb, whereas Exodus prefers to use the word Sinai. They both refer to the same place. The Lord made the nation dwell at the base of this mountain for almost one year. Eleven months and twenty days to be exact. We read in Exodus 19, verses 1 to 3, these words. On the third new moon, meaning the third month... 
after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came to the wilderness, into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. So you see that on the third month after Israel had left the land. So there's a, little, there's a few chapters before Exodus 19, before they get to this place that cover a span of two to three months. But once they get here, they stay here until Numbers chapter 10, verse 11 to 13, where we read this. In the second year, in the second month, on the 20th day of the month, the cloud lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony, and the people of Israel set out by stages from the wilderness of Sinai, and the cloud settled in the wilderness of Paran. They set out, and hear it, for the first time at the command of the Lord by Moses. So the command of the Lord given to Moses is what we read in Numbers 1, verse 6. You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey and go. So what this means is when you are reading the scriptures, everything you read from Exodus chapter 19, verse 1, all the way to Numbers chapter 10, verse 10, all 58 chapters of material, that all takes place within this 11 months and 20 days at the foot of of Mount Sinai. During that year, the Lord revealed to the nation the Ten Commandments. The Lord revealed numerous laws covering such aspects of life in the land as ceremonial regulations, meaning how the nation was to worship the Lord their God. He also revealed to them moral laws and regulations, meaning how they were to uh, live for the Lord in the land. And he also revealed to them civic and political regulations, meaning how the people were to be governed them as they lived in the land as God's treasured possession among all the peoples, his kingdom of priests and his holy nation. So during this year, as they dwelt in the wilderness at Sinai, the Lord gifted and instructed individuals in Israel to do such things as to construct and build according to his strict and exacting requirements everything from the Ark of the Covenant to the tabernacle to the utensils to the furniture to the clothing that the priests would wear. During this year, the Lord established the sacrificial system. During this year, all the men in Israel, 20 years old and older, all those who were able to go to war were counted. A census was taken, and the number came to 603,350, as you see in Numbers chapter 1, verse 46. During this year, the Lord organized the camp with each tribe given a certain location around the tabernacle whenever they started traveling. And they would follow this outline for the next 39 years in the wilderness. The tabernacle was consecrated for the service of the Lord in those days as well. In this year, the Lord organized Israel, and after these 11 months and 20 days, the time came for them, according to Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 6, to turn and take their journey to the hill country of the Amorites. And after their departure from Egypt, after their being organized as a nation in the wilderness of Sinai, the Lord tells them to break camp and go. Telling them in verse 8, see, I have set the land before you. 
Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, to give to them and to their offspring after them. See, this promise of the land, when you read the Old Testament as we work through Deuteronomy, you will see that this promise of the land forms and comprises one of the central themes, not only in the book of Deuteronomy, but throughout the entire Old Testament. And when you get to the very end of our Bible, Revelation chapters 21 and 22, you see that we enter into the eternal kingdom, which is what? The new Jerusalem. The Lord here now seems poised to deliver to this generation 40 years earlier. He seems ready to make good on the promise of the land in this moment, a promise that he had made and reiterated to, his, to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. You see, back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, when the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. And again, in Genesis chapter 13, verses 14 and 15, the Lord said to Abram, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring after you forever. And then in Genesis 17, again, in verses 7 and 8, the Lord said to Abraham, Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So at least three times the Lord makes this promise to Abraham that land is going to belong to your offspring. And after Abraham's death, a famine hit the land, and Isaac, Abraham's son, was dwelling in the land, and he thought about going to Egypt to escape the difficulties of that famine. But the Lord appeared to Isaac and once again declared his intention to give this land to his family line, as he had promised his father Abraham, saying, do not go down to Egypt, dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. Genesis 26, verses 3 and 4. And once again, after Abraham, after Isaac, we are introduced to Abraham's grandson and Isaac's son, a man named Jacob, to whom the Lord repeated the promise in Genesis chapter 28 as Jacob curled up in the wilderness with a rock under his head to go to sleep one night. As he slept outdoors in Genesis 28 verse 13, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father and the God of Isaac the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. So over and over and over again, the Lord made this promise to these three men. This is going to be the land that I give to your offspring. And it was so clear to this family line that the land that they were in was going to be given to them by God that Jacob's son Joseph, who through a series of providentially directed events 
ended up becoming the second most powerful man in Egypt after only Pharaoh himself. When he died, he said to his brothers these words in Genesis 50, verses 24 and 25. I'm about to die. But God will visit you, and he will bring you up out of, the la- out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry my bones from here. So while Joseph is going to die in Egypt, he knows beyond any shadow of a doubt that when God makes a promise, God keeps his promise. And so he made his brothers swear, when you go, When God visits, when it's time, be sure to take my bones with you because I don't want to be buried in Egypt. I want to be in the land of promise. And so this promise of the future inheritance of the land, it became a part of Israel's hope and identity even up to to our very day. You want to understand what is going on in the Middle East. You want to understand the, the... constant agitations over the land. It's because the land is a part of Israel's identity as a people. But going back here, now, after centuries of waiting for the fulfillment of the promise, after being liberated from enslavement in Egypt by the very God who made these promises to their forefathers, God has now told the people, sitting around Mount Sinai, in verse 8, Go in and take possession of the land. Go, lay hold of the sure promise of God. Don't doubt, don't waver, don't hesitate. Go in, take possession. God has told you that this land belongs to you. He has promised it to you. He has promised it to your forefathers. He has promised it as an everlasting possession. Go in faith, trust in his word. He will win the victory for you. Sure, when you look at the people in the land, they are large, they are strong, they are well-trained, but don't worry, you have God on your side. God is with you. He will give them into your hand. The time of their judgment is close, so go in, take it, live in it, enjoy the blessings that I've promised to you, live for God in this plentiful land. If you've been with uh, Winona Gospel Church for any amount of time, you realize that I only have like two or three illustrations, and I repeat them all the time, so here we go again. There are times when I would take my children to the dollar store, because you know, things are expensive, and kids like to get new toys, and I'm not going to go to any of those places that charge a, a ton for toys. But there is a difference in the mentality and the the boldness of your children. Hopefully, when you enter a store, if you as a parent told them before they entered the store, you're not getting anything, or you can choose anything you want. Right? If you say to your child, you're not getting anything, so don't complain, then they kind of walk through like this, slinking through, and maybe they'll complain, please, please, please. But if prior to entering the store, you say to them, listen, kids, you can choose something, anything you want in this store, and I will buy it for you. There is a confidence to that child when they walk into the store, right? The doors explode open, and the kid walks in. Get out of my way. My dad just told me that I could have whatever I want in here, 
And so they walk through the aisles, avoiding, you know, the housewares and the towels and whatever it is that they sell there. And they go immediately to the toy and they start looking at the rack. And if anyone says anything to them, they're like, I got this, I got this. My dad said I can have anything here, so I'm going to choose anything here and nothing is going to get in my way. And they grab whatever it is that they want and they walk up to the counter and they're like, boom, I'll take that. And it doesn't matter what anyone tells them, because when their dad told them they could have it, there is no one that's going to tell them otherwise. That's how Israel should have responded. My father in heaven has told me that this land is mine. And so, I'm taking it. We are taking it. He told us to go in without wavering and take possession of the land. He told me that he would fight the battle for me. He told me that he will win it for me and ain't nobody getting in my way. The response of the nation to this call of God to go up and take possession of the land will be covered next week when, as Moses continues his history lesson. But before we get there... Moses recounts in his history lesson what happened just before the sending of the spies into Canaan. He recounts the last little bit of organization that is required for Israel as they move into the promised land. When he recognizes the need to share leadership of the nation with other godly qualified men. We see that in verse 9. When he says, At that time I said to you, I am not able to bear you by myself. See, Moses recognized this fact when Israel left Sinai and began complaining about the difficulties they had to endure during their trek to Canaan. It didn't take long. Break camp and move. And within hours, they started complaining. We read it in Numbers 11, verse 1, describing this time frame. In 11 verse, Numbers 11, 1, which is the backdrop of the story, that it, the history that is, Moses is recounting here, we read, the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outlying parts of the camp. So a few things to note here before we move on. Moses is one man laboring to care for a nation. And he's not going to be able as one man to hear or address the concerns of every single person in the nation. And Israel, rather than understanding the task and the role and the burden that Moses carries as one man in the nation... As he attempts to lead the nation in the ways of God, instead of understanding, the people took to complaining about their misfortunes. They took to vocally expressing their discontent, their displeasure, their unhappiness with the circumstances in their life, with their troubles and with their difficulties. They started complaining and murmuring and grumbling about the fact that their wants were not heard or addressed. They were upset that things weren't the way they wanted them to be. 
And the complaining that is spoken of here is a secretive type of complaining. One of those from person to person type of things. Going to other people and just grumbling about the things that are upsetting them. Which does absolutely no positive good. Just gets everybody upset. And did you notice in Numbers 11.1, the Lord's reaction to the complaints or the complaining people? His anger was kindled. The fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outlying parts of the camp. Now, we can all kind of understand, right, that as you're traveling through the wilderness, I mean, we get to leave here, we hop in our generally nice cars and go to our generally nice houses and sleep in our generally nice beds and hopefully have a generally nice time for the rest of the day. We're not living in the wilderness. We're not living where the sand is blowing in our eyes and getting stuck in our ears and, and you know, if you go to the beach or you do anything like that, you're finding sand for weeks. So we understand the terrain is tough. The weather is not as nice as they'd like. They, would want, they hope for more variety in their food. Things aren't exactly as they would like them to be, but even so, when they complain about it, it kindled the blazing anger of the Lord. Complaining and grumbling and bellyaching as people of God against either God the believers, or your circumstances is, and hear me clearly, it is a sign of rebellion against the Lord. It is a sign that you lack trust in the Lord. It is a sign, a deed, or an act of unfaithfulness to the Lord. Know this, the witness of Scripture is quite clear. God records your tears. God knows the wrongs that have been committed against you. And he is more angered by the wrongs committed against you than you are. And he will address the, ang- the, the wrongs that have been committed against you more purely, more righteously, and more correctly than we ever could. And so the witness of Scripture is this, God's people do not grumble, God's people do not complain, but instead we entrust everything, all of those pains, all of those hurts, all of our circumstances, all of our situations, we entrust them into the hand of a God who judges justly, a God who will not let any of it slip through his fingers, a God who will deal with it in a perfect way. And armed with that knowledge, you don't have to hold on to them. You don't have to keep it. You don't have to bear it. Because you learn a few things here about complaining and what it does to people from our text. Before we get there, know this. The New Testament also has much to say about those who claim to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, but who grumble and complain. Peter, for example, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9, wrote this to the, to the saints. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Meaning, we are to treat one another, to treat our fellow Christians generously and kindly with warm-hearted affection without any grumbling. 
The word here means the same as it did in Numbers, without any behind-the-scenes talk or secretive murmuring to somebody else. Listen, if you have engaged in behind-the-scenes talk about any of your fellow believers, you have done a wicked, awful, terrible sin. It must be repented of because it kindles the blazing anger of the Lord. Jude speaks of grumblers and malcontents as being those who, above all things, follow their own sinful desires. You hear that? If you are a grumbler and a malcontent and a complainer, it means that your primary goal is to follow your own sinful desires. Jude 16. Grumblers and malcontents here describe those who are given to complaining, who are given to whining about their lot, who are given to blaming others for their circumstances rather than looking to God in faith and trust in those circumstances. Rather than saying something like, I know the secret of having much and I know the secret of having nothing, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. It's whining and moaning and grumbling and complaining. Jude continues, and he tells his readers that those who follow their own ungodly passions, their own sinful desires, as they scoff and complain, listen to this, and this should terrify you. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. You hear that? These cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. Instead, the Apostle Paul calls on all of us who are saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those of us who know that Jesus Christ is Lord and that He has died for us. He was raised on the third day and we believe and we've called out to Him for salvation in whom the Holy Spirit resides. Paul tells us this, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. So complaining is not what Christians do. Forgiving is what Christians do. And not only are we to avoid complaining and murmuring and whining and secretive talk against our fellow believers, but we are to avoid complaining in general. Listen to these words of Paul to the Philippian believers in chapter 2, verse 14 of Philippians. Do all things. So when when, when you hear that phrase, all things, what does it mean? Does it mean some things? No, thank you. It doesn't just mean some things, it means all things. And what do we do? Do all things without grumbling. Philippians 2.14, highlight that. Such a grumbling, complaining disposition is one that is so fixated on the self and on the problems of self to the point that it would rather whine or talk behind the scenes about another, and that is unbecoming of a Christian To be a complainer is to be one who is selfish, self-centered, and fixated on the idol of yourself. And if it's maintained, you continue on as a grumbler and a complainer, it might very well be that you are, as Jude says, worldly and devoid of the Spirit, and the call to you right now is that you must repent and turn to Jesus Christ in faith and truly believe in him and put your faith in him. 
Because the word of the Lord is true, that when we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive them. Even something as heinous as grumbling and complaining. And so as the people complained and the wrath of God came down upon the camp and it burned up some of the outlying areas of the camp, we're going to see a few things that complaining does in the midst of the congregation. They cried out to Moses in Numbers chapter 11, verse 2. It says, the people then cried out to Moses and Moses, the leader, prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. Now, the people had just complained. They asked Moses to intercede on their behalf. Do you think now that they would be like, oh, thank you, Moses, thank you. You know what? We are going to stop complaining now. Thank you for this. We've learned our lesson. We're going to move on, and we're going to actually be faithful and speak and, and avoid grumbling and avoid moaning and avoid whining. No, that's not what they did, because if you are a complainer, you are simply never satisfied, even when your need is met. You simply move on to the next complaint, if that is your disposition. And we see this happen exactly in Numbers chapter 11. It says, immediately after Moses prayed the prayer of 11.2, we read this in 11.4. Listen, now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again. And said, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, and the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Moses heard, Numbers 11.10, Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. So, people complained, wrath of God fell, Moses interceded, the wrath resides, and the people continue to complain, but this time about something else. Even after witnessing the destruction that had been brought upon the the tribes by their complaining. Here's another lesson to learn about complainers. Oftentimes they have no problem with the devastation of their murmuring. Because in some way their flesh is appeased. Their fleshly desires for vengeance and power is appeased. These people saw the destruction, but instead of learning from it, they now proceeded to grumble once again, but this time about their lack of variety in their diet. And another thing they went and did was they went and convinced the rest of the people to join in with their complaint. See, complainers also do that. They seek to create factions and convince others through those back-channel conversations to join their team to join their complaining team of tearing down those against whom their anger is directed. That's what Israel did. That's what this, the word for the, used to describe them here is rabble. That's what these complainers did. They, stro- they strove to add more voices to the chorus of complaint. And do you see what the complaining accomplished? 
Complainers cause the people of God to look backward with a revisionist history rather than look forward in faith. This is what murmuring did, right? The people of Israel groaned and looked back and they said, Do you remember the onions? Do you remember the leeks and the cucumbers and the garlic? Do you remember all of those tasty delights? And they said this, that cost us nothing. Talk about revisionist history right there, right? Because if you go back, it seems like they have forgotten the very things we learn about this enslavement in Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, where we read, the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. And when Moses went to them with the promises of God that God was giving to them, he told them about how God was going to deliver them it says in Exodus 6, verse 9, the people of Israel did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. They forgot all that, right? They just remember the cucumbers. And I mean, who doesn't like a good cucumber? But what they should have remembered is that food was not free. It had cost them everything. It had cost them their freedom. And that's what murmuring does, doesn't it? Murmuring and complaining, if that is your disposition, is costing you your liberty in Christ. As it causes you to continually look backward and to continually revise history and find ways to hold on to whatever it is that we're angry about and we're complaining about and we're whining about, it causes you to just keep looking back there instead of looking at the source of your joy in this life. It tricks us into focusing on our own flesh. It tricks us into becoming idolaters. And these complainers, they went about and they succeeded in winning over Israel to the point that everyone was crying in their tents because they had no meat. And listen, listen to Numbers 11 verse 10 again. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord blazed hotly and Moses was displeased. So here's what you see there. Neither the Lord nor Moses sympathized with these complainers. Leaders don't sympathize with murmurers, but rebuke them, as Moses did. Moses was displeased because it was at this time that he realized the truth that he was told by his father-in-law Jethro a year earlier. Numbers 11, verse 14, I am not able to carry this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. See, before they came to Sinai, during those few months as they traveled to the wilderness in Sinai, Jethro, who is Moses' father-in-law, said in Exodus chapter 18, verses 17 to 23, he came to Moses and he said this, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men 
from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide, every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. But it took a year for Moses to actually establish that system. He established it as the people were about to depart from Sinai to Canaan in number 11, Numbers 11, after the complaining of the people revealed to Moses the weight and the burden of leadership is simply too heavy for a single man, not named Jesus Christ, to carry. We read the establishment in Numbers 11, verses 16 and 17. So this is all the history behind our text this morning. The Lord said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there, and I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you may not bear it yourself alone. Now, as you're hearing Moses say those words, right, in, uh, in verse 9, At that time I said to you, I am not able to bear you by myself. It could sound a little bit like Moses is embittered by the rapid expansion of the nation and all the problems that come with it. But in order to uh, ensure that the people know or knew that Moses was not embittered, but that this, he understood that this is a blessing of the Lord, that the people are expanding, he said in Deuteronomy 1.10, he interjected in Deuteronomy 1.10, the Lord your God has multiplied you. And behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are and bless you as he has promised you. This is yet another one of the Lord's promises to the nation. The Lord said to Abraham in Genesis 15, 5, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. So shall your offspring be. So at this moment... There were in Israel at least 600,000 men able to fight in the upcoming conquest of Canaan, and along with them, their wives and their children. So here in the wilderness, the nation could quite conceivably have comprised somewhere near 2 million people. And Moses, the outstanding leader that he is, is taxed and wearied by the weight and the burden of the people and their strife what he says in verse 12 of Deuteronomy chapter 1, right? Look at it. How can I bear by myself the weight and the burden of you and your strife? This is a great church and pastoral insight. One that continues on into the New Testament. In the New Testament, we see God gift and give to his church elders and deacons and teachers and, what, and, and numerous others. Elders are tasked with overseeing the spiritual needs of the church and concerning themselves with prayer and the ministry of the word. And so Moses, when it was his time to do that very thing, he called upon, and you'll see this phrase used in the Old Testament, the congregation of Israel. 
It's a very churchy type word, right? The congregation of Israel. This is the people of God together as a congregation. He calls on them to choose from among their number wise, understanding, and experienced men. In like manner, when you get to the New Testament, you see the Apostle Paul also instructing the churches to appoint a plurality of godly, gifted men, as the Apostle Peter puts it, to shepherd the flock of God by exercising oversight, not domineering over those in their charge, but to be examples to the flock. And as it was in the, to the people of Israel, the writer of the he, letter to the Hebrews sets down the responsibility of the congregation to those who are appointed as elders over them. Hebrews 13.7 is clear. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So the Lord gives elders to care for the spiritual needs of the church today, just as he did in the life of Israel then. The Lord also gives to his church today deacons and deaconesses, those who are tasked with caring for the physical and administrative needs of the people of God. The clear example of this being Acts chapter 6, where the congregation chose seven men to oversee and care for the daily distribution of food to the Greek widows in the church who were being overlooked. So for Moses, 40 years earlier, in light of the continuing growth of the nation of Israel and the numerous complaints and grumblings among them, he said, how can I bear by myself the weight and the burden of you and your strife? How can I alone deal with and carry the load of concern for every single one of you? How can I alone stand up under and sustain in all of these troubles? That's what the word weight here means in uh, 1.12. It speaks to the troubles and the annoyances of the people's endless conflicts, disputes, quarrels, contentions, and dissensions. The Apostle Paul, in his second letter to the Corinthians, speaks to the weight and the burden of leading God's people when he said no matter where he is, as he travels, in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. It's a constant weight and burden for the apostle to continually concern himself with the health of the churches that he had planted. And for this reason, he followed the Mosaic example of appointing elders for the people in every church and then committing the congregations to the care of those godly men. And so Moses here, in order to spread out the care of the people, said to the Israelites in verse 13, Choose for your tribes wise, understanding, experienced men, and I will appoint them as your head. Now, a couple of things to note here. First, Moses leaves the choice of the leaders over the peoples to who? The people. The congregation of Israel searched for men among them who were wise, meaning of good judgment and, uh, and common sense, who who were understanding, meaning they were discerning, insightful, and able to practically apply the word of God, and who were experienced, meaning they were well known to the people that they're going to lead, they're proven among the people they're going to lead, and they command the respect of the peoples of those they are about to lead, and they are mature in their intelligence. They were to be men who fear God 
and so able to faithfully apply the law of God. They were to be trustworthy men who hate bribes, and they were to be above any reproach. Such men were to be identified by the congregation of Israel, by the congregation of Winona Gospel Church, and present, presented to the church, or in Israel's case, presented to Moses, who would then appoint or install those men's, men as heads or leaders in their tribes. And the people, hearing Moses say this, said in verse 14, that thing that you have spoken for us to do, that you have spoken, it's good for us to do. In other words, that sounds like a great idea, Moses. Let us do as you said. So verse 15, Moses took the heads of their tribes, wise and experienced men, and set them as heads over the people, commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, commanders of fifties, commanders of tens, and officers throughout their tribes. So with the agreement of the people, Moses appointed heads or commanders. These men served a twofold purpose in the nation of Israel, commanders of hundreds, thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens, meaning there is a military aspect to their leadership because they're, the, they're going to lead these people into the charge of uh, advancing to conquer the, conquer the promised land. And they would also be judges, as you see in verse 16, judges over the people. And I charged your judges at that time, hear cases between your brothers and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. So these heads were also to be judicial overseers for the people. When the people had a dispute that needed resolution, they were to bring that dispute to the judge or the head that was appointed to help them. And that judge was tasked with hearing the cases that arose among the people and to judge those cases righteously. So the the role of these men was twofold to lead the people forward, to lay hold of the promises of God, and to lead them in the faithful interpretation and application of God's word. Two principles that still exist for your leaders today. The task was to continue throughout the generations of Israel as well. As we get to Deuteronomy 16, you'll see that Moses will command the people in the land to continue this process. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God has given you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. So what does it mean to judge righteously as a leader of the people of God in the congregation of God? It means, according to Deuteronomy, that you apply the law of God faithfully without partiality to every citizen and sojourner in Israel. To judge righteously means you shall not be partial in judgment. That's what Deuteronomy tells us, right? That phrase could also mean you don't regard faces. When people come before you, imagine them with paper bags over their heads. So you don't know who they are, you don't know their status, you don't know how much money or how little money they have, you don't know how important they are, you simply listen to their case without any regard for their status or importance in the tribe or the family or the society. It doesn't matter who they are. Listen to their case and apply the law of God faithfully. This is the domain of the wise, said King Solomon. In Proverbs, for example, he said, These are the sayings of the wise. Partiality and judgment is not good. Whoever says to the wicked, You are in the right, will be cursed by the peoples and abhorred by the nations. But those who rebuke the wicked will have delight. A good blessing will come upon them. Whoever gives an honest answer kisses the lips. Proverbs 24, 23 to 26. And as James wrote in the New Testament, 
in chapter 2, verse 1, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And listen, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So you show no partiality, according to Moses in Deuteronomy, by hearing the small and the great alike. You see that in verse, uh, in verse 17. The small and the great alike. Listen to the cases that are brought to you by those who are considered lesser in the nation. If a sojourner brings a case against an Israelite, hear it and judge righteously. If a rich man brings a case against a poor man, hear it and judge righteously. You shall not be partial to the rich because they are rich and they might be able to reward you financially for a judgment that you render in their favor, nor are you to be partial to the poor because they have a, a more heart-wrenching story or a sob story that, that pulls on the heartstrings. No matter who brings the case before you, you as a leader of the people in Israel, as a leader in the church, must not regard faces, but must hear all cases and must judge faithfully and righteously every time applying the law and the command of God each and every to each and every case because the rule and the word of God is always the authority all the time and it is to his word that we all submit all the time another way to remain impartial in judgment on top of hearing the both the small and the great alike is the next instruction Moses gives in verse 17 you shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. Now we rest here for a second because this is one that we all struggle with, right? Nobody likes to fear other people, and yet we all do for some reason. There's a reason we all shrink back from conflict. There's a reason we all avoid telling each other the truth to our faces and go behind backs. There's a reason we all do that. It's because we fear and are intimidated by the conflict that might arise. For a judge or for a leader in Israel, the command is do not fear the responses of those in the cases you hear. Because we all have a tendency to self-justification and defensiveness, right? To lashing out at anger with those who in applying the word of God to our lives speak contrary to the way we would prefer things to to come out. In our day, to be so committed will cause others to sneer and to jeer and to mock and to intimidate. J.C. Ryle, in his book Holiness, an old pastor, one of my favorites, wrote, these, wrote this, and I quote, there are few things more powerful than ridicule and scorn. It can do far more than open enmity and persecution. Many a man who would march up to a cannon's mouth or lead in a hopeless charge or storm a breach has found it impossible to face the mockery of a few companions and has flinched from the path of duty to avoid it. To be laughed at, to be made a joke of, to be jested and sneered at, to be reckoned weak and silly, to be thought a fool. There is nothing grand in all of this, and many, alas, cannot make up their minds to undergo it. Fear of man 
is in many cases for us a primary consideration for the way we live our lives. And it causes us to avoid listening and obeying even God himself. The Apostle Paul experienced this very difficulty, being one who wisely and righteously spoke the word of God without fear to anyone standing before him. And when he went to the Galatian church, he wrote his letter to the Galatian church, who were, these believers were in danger of succumbing to a, uh, a heresy that was being spoken among them by a group called the Judaizers. He, reco- he told them, you guys are, you need to remember the truth of the gospel that you are declared righteous and innocent in the sight of God by his grace as you turn to Jesus in faith. See, these men had infiltrated the church and said, no, if you are to be saved and acceptable to God, you must follow the law of the Old Testament and be circumcised in order for God to accept you. You aren't saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, they said. You are saved by a combination of grace and works. You are saved by becoming a Jew first, following the Old Testament rituals, and then turning to Jesus after you have cleaned yourself up and gotten yourself in order. And Paul said, that is an accursed lie. That is a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Salvation is taken hold of by those who trust Jesus Christ and believe in his name. And as Paul corrected the church, it seems that there were a number of people who were angry with him as he did. Hostility, they were hostile with him because he was unyielding and firm and uncompromising in his words on the subject to the point where he had to ask them in the letter, in chapter 4, verse 16, have I become your enemy? by telling you the truth. But Paul would not be intimidated. He would not be fearful of dealing truthfully and righteously with anyone because he was not first and foremost seeking to attain the approval of man. He was seeking first and foremost to serve obediently his Lord Jesus Christ. And all who would be recognized as leaders and heads of God's people must not be intimidated by anyone into judging unrighteously because, verse 17, the judgment is God's. You see that in verse 17? The judgment is God's. Meaning that what is considered righteous is not up to you or I, nor is it in our hands. What is righteous has been revealed to us and set down for us in the pages of Scripture which are spoken to us by God himself, who is the only true and just one. It is not left to you and I to alter it or to change it, but only to apply it righteously and to submit to it faithfully. And the leader among God's people does what God commands and what God prescribes. No matter who brings the case, no matter how angry they get, no matter how intimidating they might be, no matter what the fallout might be, God has spoken. He is the authority, and all leaders live for the approval of one, God himself. And that's exactly what any congregation hoping to be led well ought to expect and ought to support, even when the judgments run contrary to our expectations or our desires. If they are according to God's word, it is enough. For Israel, Moses understood that there would be some cases that are more difficult than others, and so as the wisest and most uniquely qualified and gifted man in the nation, he told the judges and commanders in verses 17 and 18, the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring it to me and I will hear it. 
And I commanded you at that time all the things that you should do. Meaning, I set down to you the law that I had received from the Lord by which you are to judge the people. And if there are times where you are unsure, bring it to me and I will adjudicate it righteously. Now, you remember, right? The people said, this is a great idea. But as we will see next week, when a few of those heads were sent out to spy the promised land, the majority of them failed to live up to the qualifications for the job that they had been appointed to. As they didn't judge the situation righteously, but instead cowered in fear, intimidated by the men they saw. So in closing, a few practical takeaways from our time this morning. First, do all things without grumbling and complaining. Murmuring and complaining provokes God and reveals one who is committed more to the desires of their sinful flesh than living in the joy of the Lord. Two, pray for, identify, and appoint wise, experienced, godly leaders to judge righteously and to apply the word of God faithfully in our midst as a church who share the load and the burden of leadership in accordance with the principles set down for us in both the Old and New Testaments. Three, finally, support those wise, respected men as they labor to lead this body according to the word of God. Submit to their leadership joyfully as they have taken upon themselves the added weight of now having to give an account for their leadership to the Lord himself. Pray for them as they lead. And may all things be done to the glory of God. Father, we thank you and we praise you for the experience of Israel and how that is a mirror, in many cases, into our own lives. It's easy for us maybe to look back on Israel and say, how could they not have gotten it? What a bunch of dummies. But in many ways, they simply reveal to us the very same things that we do. And I thank you that you have not given up on them. Thank you that you remain firm and committed to seeing them and fulfilling, uh, come to the saving knowledge of Jesus one day and fulfilling the promises you've made to them. We pray that we would live in that same confidence as believers now. You aren't going to give up on us. And so we pray that you would help us to be a church that operates according to biblical principles, that is not intimidated by anyone, that hears everyone great and small alike, that leads in order to see people become more like Jesus and to see your name lifted high and glorified and represented well to the world. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.